Hello, and welcome to the New Economy Network Australia, Nina podcast. My name is Anna Garnock, and I am grateful to interview folks involved with Nina, Australia's largest multi-sectoral network of innovators, changemakers, and advocates working for an ecologically sound and socially just economy. Today, we will be interviewing Monique Potts, a teacher, researcher, and PhD candidate at the University of Technology, Sydney. She's also the co-convener of the Nina Sydney Hub. I'm excited to chat with you, Monique. Good afternoon, and thank you for joining me. Hello, Anna. Lovely to be here. Awesome. Well, we'll get stuck in. Uh, I'm curious, could you please tell us about your current role and your current work? I guess my current role is mainly in research. Um, So I'm doing a PhD uh, at UTS in the TD school. So it's a transdisciplinary PhD. I'm looking at resilience and experiential learning for young people in the context of uncertain futures and climate disruption. So that's my uh, what I spend a lot of my time doing. And then I do also do quite a bit of teaching into the Bachelor of Creative Intelligence and Innovation. Uh, and I do other sort of, I've been doing other research work, um, particularly around uh, young people, mental health and high schools at the moment. Amazing. That's super interesting, especially as a young person whose future is not uh, guaranteed both in the climate space and career space and how they intersect. So I'm personally invested in your research (laughs) and I'm curious to hear, can you tell us a little bit more about just jumping into the research side of things, what you're finding, what your findings are thus far? Well, I guess um, the the first part of my research was to explore uh, what are some of the issues that are affecting well-being and mental health for young people at the moment. Um, So I talked to uh, a bunch of different people. I talked to um, teachers and youth workers and young people just to try and get a broad sense of, you know, what are the things that are really affecting young people And there were some really interesting themes that came out of that around things like connection and belonging was one of the big themes that came out. Um, It was a theme around sort of boundaries changing um, between Mm. young people and teachers and parents, um, uncertainty around pathways and the future and the sort of crumbling institutions that are around us and um, the sort of impact of that on mental health as well. And a lot about, yeah, just dealing with mental health, in particular, um, sort of anxiety and depression. So important where I think we're already seeing just from the pandemic and post fires and now with floods, a huge rise in mental health cases and, and the system being pretty flooded. I think it's it would be fair to say that there was already a crisis in youth mental health and Uh, children's mental health before COVID, but I think it has really brought a lot of it to the forefront, which is really important. Uh, And I guess I'm kind of interested in how can we try and build support and learning environments that will enable young people to have some a sense of agency. So both individual agency, but also collective agency. So what skills can we learn such as systems thinking or futures thinking and working on projects that have an impact in the community that can support young people to feel like they have some agency and control in their own future. Mm, 
And what would that look like if you were to brainstorm now what some solutions might be for young people to have more agency in this space? Can you envision certain things that you'd like to see come to fruition? We did a pilot program in a high school in Sydney, which ran over about eight or nine months. And when we went in, we started with some co-design workshops with the students and the teachers. We sort of went in with a bit of an assumption around I guess the impact of some big issues like the fires, for example, and climate change and that sort of thing. We're all quite interested in sustainable economies and we went in with an assumption that the young people would want to do projects around that and will be interested in that. But actually what we found when we talked to them was that their interests and concerns were much closer to home you know, as you would expect really in in the teenage years. So they were worried about the pressure of work, would they be able to get a job, friendships, all of the anxiety and pressures that were sort of on them. So what we decided to do instead was to keep inquiring around this question of what's impacting wellbeing and mental health for young people. These students were in year 10 And we asked them to think about what would they have liked to have known in year eight that they know now that would have made things easier for them. So it's sort of like a peer support and co-design process. And they were really engaged with that. They seemed to really get into that. They worked in three teams. So one team looked at sleep culture. So understanding the sleep culture in the school and Each of the teams designed a learning experience for the year eight students, which they then ran with the year eight students. So, for example, the the sleep team asked the students to keep a sleep diary and to have little conversations within small groups around sleep and also for the year eights to start to understand that there is a particular culture around sleep in their school that glorifies the less sleep, you know, the better you are. So to be aware of that sort of culture and but also be aware of what their own needs might be and looking after themselves. So I guess that's kind of an example of what we found to be really effective. So while they were being impacted by a lot of these big world issues and they did identify them in terms of having a sense of agency and control I think it worked better to have something a lot closer to home for them where they felt that they could actually make a difference within that environment. And they sort of said, well, we want to, you know, share something with the year eight students so they don't have to go through what we went through. I thought it was pretty powerful, really. 100%. We can so learn from each other. I love that knowledge exchange, the idea of looking back on what you wish you could learn and now imparting that those learnings onto that age group. Yeah. That sounds, yeah, it sounds really interesting and meaningful because it's tailored to their own personal values. Yeah. What we did was they learned, the students learned a whole lot of different methods. And in particular, we sort of focused on systems thinking and futures thinking, um, which is what we do a lot of in the university degree that I teach into. And I think they thought some of it was pretty boring, to be honest. But I guess the reason that we were teaching it was as a way to explore a complex problem. So, for example, sleep culture in a school, it's a complex problem, and we encourage them to unpack that as a system and start to understand who are the different people who are within that complex system and where are the boundaries and 
where might you be able to try and influence change? So it was great that they could apply the methods as we went along and then design a learning experience based on what they'd learnt through applying those methods. And I guess that's also planting the seed of how system thinking works for future things where they might see the bigger picture and how there's interconnections between between things. And there was certainly like some of the methods they said, oh, we'll use this in our other school work as well. They all seemed to say it was a really valuable learning experience. I guess for me, one of the questions I have is you go into a school and you run a pilot and the learning environment and culture that we created was very different to what they would traditionally have in school. So then when we step out and go, like, how lasting is that transformation or that experience? So they're in year 11 now and they'll have all of those pressures around the HSC. Yeah, but I feel like I've talked a lot about my research now. (laughs) I did do a talk at the last NINA conference, which was about resilience and experiential learning in a new economy. So there is a connection to the wellbeing economy. That is a perfect segue into my next question, which is how did you get involved in NINA and why? I got involved with NINA probably about six years ago now. I guess I've always been quite interested in community development in one form or another. I saw this conference, um, this NINA conference, and I thought it looked quite interesting because it had um, sort of a combination of different groups represented there. There was people from the Greens and sort of environmental movement, as well as people from the labour and social justice movement, as well as Indigenous and First Nations peoples. And I just thought that that was such an interesting coalition. And I think the focus of social justice alongside trying to create new models for economy was just something that was really interesting to me. And so I went to the conference And then I went to the next couple of conferences and presented some work myself, then decided that I wanted to be on the board. So I nominated to be on the board and I was on the board for a couple of years and got more involved with the Sydney Hub as well. Well, you're no longer a board member, but you're a co-convener of the Sydney Hub. That's right, yeah. What was the interconnection that you saw and you learnt about in that very first conference that you went to? that led you to get more involved and even present. I'm curious about how the systems thinking, futures thinking, and all the interesting work you do at UTS correlate and connects with the work of Nina. Well, I think the space that I'm teaching in and working in, um, which is transdisciplinary area in the university, there is quite a strong interest in new models of economy So, for example, some of the researchers that I work with look at things like what is a social licence to operate, for example. A few people also do work around carbon economies and that sort of thing. I have a very broad range of interests. I often think about that idea of a Renaissance man, but I think I might be a bit of a Renaissance woman. Uh, because I've always been really interested in politics and economy, but I'm also very interested in other things as well. So I guess, yeah, for me, it, 
I think it was really the, as I say, the, the combination of people who were there who I could connect with, as well as I really like that it's geographically based as well as um, sectorally based. And that sort of matrix of the two, I think, is potentially really powerful. I mean, I think it's difficult to uh, to set it up in a way that's sustainable, given that we all have to work so hard within this existing neoliberal economy that we're based within, and particularly living somewhere like Sydney. It's very hard to sustain that sort of engagement with the new economy, to be honest. But I think the networks of people that you connect with, so you know, people like Bronwyn Morgan and and Michelle and so many of the other people in Nina, I think that's where the real power is, is in the network and the connections and collaborations that come out of that as well. And I think the wellbeing economy does relate very much to the work that I'm doing in education because if we look at the mental health of our children and young people as being one of our most valued resources, we really need to start to look at how are we going to really put some support and resources into that because, you know, without our children and our young people, I mean, who are we? What what are we going to do? You know, (laughs) I mean, I know it sounds a bit simple, but it's a bit of a no-brainer really. Totally. I mean, our mental health is fundamental to any progress because without coping mechanisms and and healthy habits and things to deal with the massive broad range of mental health challenges that people can face, then we can't really take any steps forward into a wellbeing economy or a wellbeing society. So I think you've really isolated a really important issue that on first glance can seem kind of um, separate from, let's say, an electrified carbon dioxide and and emissions-free future, but actually they're they're one in the same and they go hand in hand and without the, the, the former, we might not get the latter. With my research, one of the things I've been looking at are what are the meta competencies and skills that we might need for the future. Um, I mean, given the trajectory that we're on now, I've got five meta competencies that I've been looking at adaptability, agency, creativity, compassion, and interbeing. And then sort of looking at, well, what learning experiences might allow us to develop them and find them within ourselves. I think a lot of it is internal work, but it's also about, you know, having the agency to feel like you can make a difference, which I think is one of the big challenges with climate change is that, you know, a lot of people feel really disempowered by it, understandably. That's kind of my my focus at the moment. But I'm also in a few other sort of communities where we're looking at things like regenerative cultures and regenerative communities and education and learning. It's all quite sort of exploratory and um, small scale, uh, but I think um, there seems to be a bit of momentum, particularly around that at the moment, with Damon Gemma film, um, Regenerating Australia. So it does feel like there's a bit of a momentum around that at the moment to 
sort of focus on that. And, and I think mental health and wellbeing is such a critical part of that. Um, even being able to be in the headspace where you feel like there is potential to regenerate and that we can have a vision of the future that we can work towards and that we can be stewards for the land that we're on. It's amazing what framing can do with a documentary like Regenerating Australia, whereas whilst there is so much doom and gloom from a climate and biodiversity perspective, there is Damon did a really great job of framing it from a place of hope and not false hope, but really practical solutions that we can can do and already are doing and could do so much more of so that we can have a thriving future, which then, yeah, as you said, can feed into young people's sense of empowerment to do stuff or to be part of this potentially promising future versus disempowered. Uh, well, uh, and also I just think the disruption is not just in the climate, it's also in the economy. And, you know, we're, we're educating students for jobs that aren't going to exist in five years or 10 years, you know. So it's really more about having those skills to be creative and adapt and be able to work with whatever resources you do have available Part of my research background is also looking at the future of work. If you look at AI and machine learning and automation, a lot of the professional roles that we have now won't be necessarily around anymore. But the roles in care, like the work of the heart, I think that's going to be a big part of the future. And in order to be able to do that care work, you know, we need to be cultivating these inner qualities to be able to do that work and still be able to work in environments that are chaotic and that are uncertain but still look after ourselves and be able to help other people to find that in themselves as well. I mean, it all sounds a bit airy-fairy, but um, they're called soft skills, but I think they're quite powerful myself. They, they really are and they can't be undervalued because soft skills can be the difference between a meaningful life versus maybe not meaningless but versus more struggle. You know, the power of listening and the power of hearing and the power of supporting, the power of being vulnerable, mm-hmm. I don't think we can understate. And the power of connecting with one another, which seems to be the most human need potentially of all. Yeah, um, and I love that you mentioned as, as a part of the creativity and agency and well-being and other, those fa- five factors, adaptability is such a crucial point when we have a, an unpredictable labour force whereby my parents' generation had one job that they pursued for decades. My current generation, as, as a young person in my 30s, I'm chopping and changing jobs every few years and I just can't imagine what you know, in 50 years' time, what the labour market, we actually can't, well, to an extent, there's there's um, going to be roles that are probably beyond our current imagination. And so adaptability is going to be such a crucial thing for young yeah. people moving mm. forward. Mm, yeah, yeah, I think so. I have two daughters and one of them's just finished the HSC and um, is sort of moved into working this year. So much of it is um, the gig economy. Like so, so her whole work is is the gig economy, you know. And it, it's fine if you're healthy and you're strong and you're able to go out there and get those gigs. But 
there's no security and there's no, for example, she had a job working in um, disability support where she had to drive her own car and go around and visit clients in their homes. And then she had a minor sort of accident while she was driving um, and said to her employer, well, I was driving to a, you know, a client's house and they said, oh, no, 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 you need to go back and read your contract because that's not considered to be part of your work. So we're not going to help you with your car insurance. That's on you. It's changed so rapidly. And I think particularly under the last government, much more than we even realised. <laughs> and that security of employment of the past, it really is a thing of the past. I mean, even for me, you know, working as a casual academic, you very much feel like you're a peace worker for universities, you know, and, and two thirds of the academics are, are casual now, at least, possibly more. So it's a very different labour force that these young people are going into. Which is extra scary when living expenses and housing prices are going up so much. To not have a fallback support system of permanent ongoing work, if it's a casualised workforce and or work that has a really good enterprise bargaining agreement with workplace rights. And that's a good learning curve for young people to really read our contracts and know our because it seems they're not intuitive. You know, she was evidently going on a workplace trip, but if it's not in the contract, then those rights are void, which is so unfair, so unfortunate. So what do you think is wrong with our current economic system in Australia and globally? And, and why do we need to build a new economy? Well, I think it's just that narrative around growth and efficiency and productivity that's caused so much damage and also the disparity of wealth, which just continues to increase in Australia. It's almost hard to think what post-capitalism might look like and what post-neoliberalism might look like because we're so entrenched in trying to survive within it. I guess my sort of vision of a, a new economy, a lot of it would be reflected in that film, Regenerating Australia. And I think just seeing that vision of healthy communities where people are supporting each other, they're looking after the land and have a different set of values, I suppose, which aren't efficiency and economy and productivity, where you're spending your whole life making money for someone else but rather you're able to put your time and your energy into supporting yourself and your family and your community and, and that that is, that's the default. And it almost feels like going back to a past era, you know, like sort of, you know, slow food, slow work. I, I can't really see how else it can go in terms of humanity surviving as a, as a race. That's a very nice image and I hope it's not a false utopia and I can see that as a promising future. But as you said, we don't know, but we're part of creating it now and there's many opportunities with even just the change of government now potentially. Yeah, but I, and I think there's some, there's some powerful kind of uh, processes that are underway 
So say, for example, the Uluru Statement from the Heart, work around having a voice for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in Parliament. It's not just about that. It's also about how do we value the culture and the knowledge that they bring and how do we as, you know, I speak for myself, how do I as a probably a third or fourth generation Australian of Irish descent, how do I think about things like, for example, truth-telling about my own history and how do I try and heal the, you know, intergenerational trauma and that have been caused. And these are re- these are really for me. This feels like a really powerful time for us in Australia. And I think there's so much opportunity for us if we're willing to step into it. And the same with um, climate change. If we're willing to step into the grief and the emotion that is the reality of it. I think it's potentially really powerful. I really like Joanna Macy's work. So she has a process called The Work That Reconnects, which sort of takes people through a process of engaging with the grief of the reality of the climate disruption. She did a lot of her work around in the anti-nuclear movement, but it's very relevant to today as well. So I think those sort of things... And particularly the Uluru Statement from the Heart because it's it's an invitation, you know, it's an invitation to us from Aboriginal people that's been collaboratively created, an invitation for us to step into a new way of being on this country. I really think that we need to listen and take notice of that invitation and do whatever we can. So bringing that image of what you spoke about with Regenerating Australia coupled with a way deeper acknowledgement of our own personal past and deep acknowledgement of the horrific atrocities that we have um, passed down to, that we have committed, I suppose, to First Nations people across this continent. What would a wellbeing economy look like to you in the future? And I think it's something that we have to co-create together. I think it's something that we need to develop in collaboration. I, I don't think it's going to be one person's vision. We can only make that path by walking it together. There's no easy way. Some colleagues of mine are down in Yorubadella and they're doing some workshops They're from Worldwide Fund for Nature and they're doing some workshops around this idea of regenerative cultures. And I saw that one of my colleagues posted a picture of herself last night as part of their arrival. They had a fire and they were standing around the fire and there was some Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people there and she wrote, what would it be like if every time we came onto someone's country we had this ritual. And I've heard that from a number of elders who have spoken and talked about how the way that they would travel through the land, when they got to a boundary, they would stop and they would wait until the people sort of came and and welcomed them and there was a connection there. So, I mean, who knows what what we could co-create together, but I guess 
you know, we'd have to be willing to listen and acknowledge that this is one of the oldest cultures on earth. There's also been so much sort of cultural appropriation. It's a very sensitive barrier. I'm not sure that I really have an answer, but all I do know is that we can't just sort of try and recreate another future without that knowledge and that culture and that wisdom behind us and and with us, you know, because we'll just be doing the same thing as we've always done, coming in and, and saying, oh, yeah, we know what's right and, you know, we'll backburn all this country and, you know, that's how we'll control the fires. And it's like, well, no, that's not, it's not the right way to manage this country. But we've got to be prepared to listen, which is why Aboriginal people having a voice to parliament is such an important thing. And it's not that parliament's necessarily going to fix everything, but it's more the, the recognition of the value, I think. I think you've just hit the nail on the head of the co-creation and coming together, listening, deeply engaging with, building trust and working alongside, not coming not coming in with a top-down approach and answers, but coming in with the point of engagement and wanting to learn from and work with and support and come in solidarity and mm. together move forward. Yeah. yeah. Makarata, I think it's what it's called coming together after a struggle. I always remember, and sometimes I tell my students this story about in 1988, I was in my early 20s and I was, you know, consider myself a bit of a political activist and I was living in the inner city and there was people organising for the bicentenary protests at Tramby College in Glebe and a group of us went along. We were like young anarchists, you know, we thought we were pretty cool. We went along and said, oh, we've got this really good action we want to do. You know, we want to do this reenactment of the first fleet, but like flip it around. And the people were so beautiful. They listened. They were like, hmm, yeah, that's interesting, but nah. <laughs> and then we came back the next, we were like, oh, we've got this other idea. We could do like this and this, like street theatre. And, and they're like, hmm, yeah, interesting, nah. And we said, well, what can we do? What do you want us to do? And they're like, just walk behind us over the bridge and listen and learn. Oh, really? Okay. (laughs) Oh, my gosh, I love that story. It conjures up so much. It conjures up the passion of young people that really want to do good but have still been conditioned to come in with solutions and answers versus not coming in with answers but asking the very question, what do you value? How can we support that? And you did that. You got there and you've got your answer. Um, (laughs) That's great. (laughs) Back to your work with Nina. I'm curious about the co-convener role within the Sydney Hub. Can you tell me a bit more about what you do within that role? Well, I have to admit we haven't done a huge amount since COVID. I guess the the regional hubs, some are more active than others. And in the Sydney hub, so we had a couple of get-togethers before COVID hit. The other thing that we've sort of done over the last year is to do a bit of work collaboratively on the civil society strategy, which Nina's been developing. So we had some input onto that and just sort of worked asynchronously on that. 
And then the hub was also one of the um, supporting organisations for a screening for Regenerating Australia. But to be honest, it has not been very active. And I guess it's sort of that thing of in terms of people's time and energy and being sustainable, like you, you really need people who are active to drive it. And I'd like to think that was me, but um, realistically, you sort of do what you can. There is a network. There's about 30 people at the moment who are in um, the Nina Sydney network. And then there's a few people a little bit further out. I wouldn't say we're particularly active at the moment, but there's potential. With that potential, what would you like to see happen in the future in your, in your involvement with Nina? Like I was saying, the, I think the value is really in the network. So I think it'd be great to, you know, have an opportunity for people to get together informally once a month or once every couple of months and have a bit of a, a social get together. And then I think there's some other groups in Sydney that are quite active at the moment um, that I think we have a lot of alignment with. So for example, the Regen Sydney group, I know Bronwyn Morgan, who's my other co-convener and Nina has been quite involved with that. And there's another group called the Sydney Commons Lab, which would I've been quite involved with co-founding that. I'm not, I'm not that involved with it now. But I think building those networks and supporting each other's activities is really valuable. So, yeah, I think just continuing to build that network and inviting people in and then, you know, when people are new, there's someone that they can connect with and find out what's going on and that sort of mutual support I think is really valuable. I have our final five questions coming up that I'd like you to answer in kind of 30 seconds to a minute or less per question. So there are final fast five. Who is one person that has been an immense source of personal and professional inspiration for you and why? Probably one of my Buddhist teachers, I would say, um, a woman called Rabina Corton. She's Australian. She's originally from Tasmania. And she is an amazing teacher in Tibetan Buddhism. She's definitely one of my biggest inspirations. So second question, if you could recommend one resource, example, a book, report, article, documentary, et cetera, to listeners that you think is valuable and somewhat reflects one or maybe multiple principles of what Nina is all about, what resource would it be? Mm, that's a hard one. What I would say is... We wrote a really great report in the Sydney Commons Lab, which was all about a proposal for what Sydney Commons might look like. So I would suggest looking that up online. Great. And where can people find that one? Well, if you just search for Sydney Commons Lab report, you'll be able to find it. And we spoke to people all around the world as well about what was happening in their commons. So that's all in that report. Wonderful. Third question, how do you navigate the daily dilemma of, on one hand, you deeply understand how our economy, which is centred on infinite growth, is clearly harmful, and as such you've dedicated your life work to shifting that, yet on the other hand your survival depends very much on being part of this system. So I'm wondering how you reconcile that. Well, I think just finding work that I feel is purposeful and meaningful and for me, teaching and education is something that I do find valuable and I feel that there's an opportunity to shift 
our thinking and our worldviews a little bit through that. If you could give one piece of advice to Australia's leading politicians, our new ones, what would it be? I think to listen, to listen to people and in particular to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and make sure that their voice is at the forefront of how we decide to move forward as a nation. And if all of a sudden you miraculously had infinite time, money and resources to spend just on Nina right now, what would you do? I think I'd probably employ um, coordinators for each of the geographic and sectoral hubs and really try to build up those networks and look at how they might be more self-sustaining. Amazing. We've come to the end of our podcast, so I just wanted to say a massive thank you for taking the time out on a Saturday, no less, for joining me today and contributing to another episode of the Nina podcast. If people are interested to learn more about your super interesting research and work in all things creative intelligence and resilience, experiential learning for young people uh, in uncertain futures, et cetera, et cetera, where can they find you and how can they connect with you? Well, I do have a three-minute thesis. So if you searched for UTS Monique Potts three-minute thesis, you'll get a nice little three-minute video that has a synopsis of my research. Or you can also connect with me through the Nina website and the Sydney Hub. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you again, Monique. It's lovely to meet you. Hopefully I'll meet you in person at the conference or something. Yeah, that would be wonderful.